What do we do about our sinful behavior? You know, there are loads of ideas in our secular world about addressing bad behavior, though it's admittedly not referred to as sin. So when it comes to our bad behavior, uh, there are a number of ideas on how to help people change. For example, uh, people are encouraged to engage in practices that keep them from going into autopilot so that they have to think about what they're doing and think about their personal goals. Uh, They're encouraged to focus on the positive benefits of changing their behavior or to focus on how their lives are going to improve with that change. And you could pay attention to people who behave the way that you want to behave and focus on them so that they're encouraging you to behave the right way. Or you can pay attention to the fact that there are certain circumstances you should avoid so that you won't behave the wrong way. That can be beneficial. Then others point out how important it is to believe that you can actually change. person who needs to change, they need to believe that they can endure whatever it's going to cost to make that change. They can avoid any potential pitfalls that are going to come up. And so the, the closer a person's expectations are to what's really going to happen to them, that can help them have greater success at acting differently. The problem is, as one professor put it, there's, there's been a lot of work done to help people change their behavior, but we really don't have many successful interventions to help people maintain these changes over time. So in the short run, you know, your counselor can help you change your behavior, but you're going to have to keep going to get that help. Of course, given the emphasis in, in that type of counseling on values, personal values, and personal desires, there can be some bad things, even really, really bad things, that we don't have any problems continuing in. Things that we do because we value them, because we really want to do them. It's only when we're confronted with a value system outside of our own that we get an idea like sin. Sin can involve things that people around us, everyone around us, say are good. But when you become convinced that there is a God and that he's the standard for our lives, then your values change. And you can recognize that there is a legitimate category for our behavior called sin. And that goes beyond just social norms. It goes beyond just our societal ethics. It's still... With that transformation in our thinking, where we realize there is such a thing as sin, that doesn't necessarily translate into your behavior. I mean, you could take yourself off autopilot, and you can still sin. You could focus on the long-term benefits of righteous behavior and still choose, in the immediate moment, those temporary benefits of sin. Just knowing about sin doesn't change anything. So what do we do about sinful behavior? You know, there are some Christians who don't even think we need to do anything about our sinful behavior. There are actually some who would listen to what Paul said here in Romans up to this point, and they'd they'd say, you know, we're, we're considered righteous by faith in Jesus, not by what we do. They fully accept that Jesus is our representative. He's rescued us from the consequences of our sin, and that means we don't have to worry about what we do. So take the extreme example of Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin, he was that Russian monk who was very 
influential in the lives of the last Tsar's family, the Romanov family. F.F. Bruce, he explained Rasputin's theology. He said that Rasputin taught and exemplified the doctrine of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. So basically, since sin and repentance, that's how somebody experiences the joy of God's forgiveness. Rasputin believed that continuing in your sin with abandon would result in the most joy when you're forgiven. That's true that those who sin the most also experience the most forgiveness. And Jesus said in in Luke 7 that that woman's joy was proportional to how much she knew she'd been forgiven. But but Rasputin's theology is crazy. Not what the Bible teaches. And yet, as crazy as it, it might sound, what Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 6 It almost sounds kind of like what Rasputin was saying. He gives this response, and it may well have been the kind of response that people that he had talked to had made, especially in a a Jewish context. And so he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So how does the idea of, of God's grace, as Paul's described it, how does it not lead to this kind of thinking that it's okay to sin? I mean, if God's grace comes while we're sinners, didn't come to us because we'd done any change. And if, if our righteous standing before God is not based in any way on what we do, well, then why don't we just continue in sin? Why would we stop? If our behavior doesn't play into our salvation, you can see the logic. It's obviously wrong. And, and what we know of the Bible uh, we, we already know that, that that's not the right response. And yet, when you just think about the logic, you can understand it seems logical. So what is wrong with that logic? That's what Paul's going to address in our passage this morning. Now, we could say not only that our sin isn't going to ultimately matter, we could also say that our sin, if we, the more we sin, we create an opportunity for God's grace to increase also. I mean, if we remember what Paul said in chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So logically then, the more we sin, the more grace. And Paul says at the beginning, uh, you could turn to Romans 6 if you haven't already done so, but Paul says at the very beginning, in answer to that question, he says, by no means. He says, it's clearly wrong. This is not the way you should think. Why is that not the way we should think? Again, that's what we're going to be instructed in. And Paul's not just going to tell us. He's not just going to explain why we don't sin. He's going to actually give us instructions for how we change as believers. And unlike modern methods to change your behavior, Paul is not teaching a method So in our modern, what's referred to as as scientific perspective on behavior, it's missing something crucial, absolutely crucial for understanding your behavior and addressing your behavior. It's what Paul talked about in chapter 5. And what he talked about in chapter 5 is that we are not inherently good. We're not even neutral. So in the historical first human, in Adam, we all sinned. And now we exist in this world that's ruled by sin. 
And we know that because the world we live in is ruled by death. Death is the consequence for Adam's sin. So this is our circumstance, this is our situation. We're in Adam, but God. Remember how crucial those two words are. But God, he's acted to rescue us. And he's done that in a very, very powerful way to rescue us from our circumstances, to rescue us from God's wrath. He's rescued us by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, our Lord, from Jesus, through Jesus, the Messiah. And it's that death and resurrection, that's why Paul says we don't continue in in sin. We do not continue in sin because just as all sinned in Adam, every believer has died and risen with Christ. And so what we're going to see this morning are, are three facets to our dying and rising with Christ that show why we, can, we do not continue in sin. So it's, there's the fact of our dying and rising with Christ, the results of our dying and rising with Christ, and the application of our dying and rising with Christ. So the fact and the results and the application of dying and rising with Jesus is why we do not just keep sinning. Even though our behavior does not contribute to our salvation in any way, we do not continue in sin because we died with Christ and we were raised with him. And so Paul starts in verse 2 to explain the fact of our dying and rising with Christ. And he gives there, in the second part of verse 2, he gives the fuller answer to his question. So not only does he say, may it never be, by no means, he goes on to respond with this rhetorical question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's another way of saying we absolutely must not live in sin because we died to sin. So you, at the very beginning, you're confronted with these diametric poles of life and death. We cannot live in sin because that's not the relationship we have to sin anymore. It's not one of life but of death. We died with respect to sin. So there's something about our relationship to sin because of Jesus that makes continuing in it something that doesn't fit, that that doesn't follow. It is not logical to continue in sin, not according to what, what Paul's teaching here. And so what he's talking about, he says, is that we died to sin. What's he talking about by saying that believers have died to sin? That's what he explains in verses three through five. And he starts by drawing his audience and he's telling these Roman believers that what he's about to say is something they already knew. So he says, do you not know? And what he's doing is he's encouraging them to think about their experience. Now there's a problem in what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter six. He there's a difference between what we experience now and what they experienced in the first century. Between the first century believer's experience and our own experience. And, and so it makes it a little confusing. Paul talks about baptism. And the way he talks about it, it can confuse us because of the, this difference. So just remember where baptism came from. I mentioned it before, when, when Ken and I were in Israel... There were all over these, these different locations was a construction called a mikvah. And that mikvah was used by Jewish people to purify themselves. It was used according to the Old Testament law to purify themselves after they become unclean for a variety of reasons. Later, though, that became used for any, any Gentile who wanted to become 
or convert to Judaism. They had to do the same thing, go through the same process, go down into the waters of a mikvah and then come back out to identify with God's old covenant people. Well, Jesus used that, that practice with his own followers. And remember, his own followers, they were all Jewish at the time. So just think about what that, that meant. This is a practice that was used for non-Jewish people, and Jesus was using it for Jewish people. Jesus was saying he was doing something so new, something so radical, it required a conversion within Judaism. That it wasn't enough to just be identified with God's old covenant people. You had to be identified with him. And and Jesus even related baptism to what he was going to go experience in Jerusalem. In Mark 10, 38 and 39, Jesus described death, his death in Jerusalem, as his baptism. And that's that's not a huge leap. In fact, there are other places where the New Testament compares baptism with waters that brought death. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul mentions Israel passing through the Red Sea and then says that they were baptized. And Peter compares baptism to Noah and his family as they, as they uh, brought, were brought through the flood. But remember that Pharaoh and his army, when they passed through those waters, they died. As did everyone who was not on the ark with the flood. So... You have this idea, even though people in the first century were not buried like we are buried, where they didn't dig a hole, put them in the ground, they put them in caves. So some people would say, well, you know, it doesn't make sense going down is not the same thing as dying. But that imagery of going underwater is an image of death. And so it is perfectly understandable how going down into the water actually does symbolize burial. You've died And coming out of the water does symbolize rising from the dead. So in the first century, when someone was confronted with the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, and they believed it, they were nearly always immediately baptized. And Jewish people understood what baptism was. There was no other ideas about baptism at the time. And even Gentiles had had ideas about what baptism was. So there weren't all these other perspectives. There weren't this accumulation. There wasn't this accumulation of ideas about baptism in the first century. Now, unfortunately, that's not the case today. Not only are there lots of ideas about baptism, but there's lots of ideas about Jesus and about faith in Jesus. And that's why when somebody comes to saving faith, wants to be baptized to obey their Lord, we don't just immediately do it. We want to sit down with them. We want to talk with them. We want to make sure that they understand baptism. We want to make sure that they, they believe what we believe before we baptize them. But that actually, that delay makes things different than they were in the first century. In the first century, there was... There was very little gap between a person's conversion and their baptism. That turning point in their life was immediately followed by their baptism. Because of that, that Peter and Paul and others in the New Testament, they talk about conversion by referring to baptism. And because those are roughly the same time, and again, we, we tend in the West, we tend to be very particular about timing of things. Well, they were often very general about the timing of things. And so the way the New Testament talks at times, it almost sounds like the benefits that we receive through faith are also received through baptism. 
And that's not the case. And actually, even the context of Romans is going to show us that that is not what Paul is getting at. Paul has emphasized throughout Romans that we have, ex- we have forgiveness and acceptance by God by faith alone. So he has not now suddenly shifted gears and said we have that by faith and by baptism. That does not follow. And the fact that Paul only talks about baptism in two verses in Romans, when his emphasis has been on faith, shows us we're, we're, we need to be careful about making and jump, jumping to conclusions. Paul could assume that every believer was baptized in obedience to their Lord. But it didn't play a part in his theology of salvation whatsoever. Because baptism doesn't save. But it's the fact that everyone, every believer had been baptized that provided this this opportunity for Paul to explain what happened to them and to point to what happened to them at their conversion. Baptism provides this picture of what happened to us when we first turned and trusted in Christ. And again, because they're so close together, he could point to their baptism and what it pictured and talk about how that was the time that they were united with Christ. And so Paul says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So he's asking these believers to remember what they experienced when they were baptized, which pictured them unite, being united with Jesus. And Paul includes himself in this. He says in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Just as someone would walk down the steps of the mikvah, down into the water, be immersed in that water, and come out. First, before they came out, Paul's describing that going down into the water. He's saying that that's like going to the point of death, being buried with Christ. So by faith, when Jesus died, the believer died with him. Now, you don't stay under the water, do you? That's good, right? Because the point was not merely that we died with Jesus. That wasn't the main point. So Paul says that we were buried, as it were, with Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the gospel. We died so that we might live. And he says it's the Father's glory that raised Christ from the dead. That's that glory that we have set our hope on, our joyful confidence. Paul talks about that in Romans 5 too. That, that glory was first experienced by our Lord. He died for us so that we would be united with his death and then also experience that glory of the Father by his resurrection. So the goal, he says, of this union with Christ is that we too might walk in newness of life. And walking is that, that ubiquitous biblical metaphor of how you behave, how you live. It's like picturing walking down a path. That's how you behave. And so we're meant to share in Christ's resurrection so that we would walk a different path, so that our lives would be a new kind of life, so that our behavior would change. That's what Paul's saying. And he points out this connection. In verse 5, he's just making it obvious. 
He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If one is true, the other is true. Paul's been talking about this union with Christ ever since the last section that we were in, in chapter 5. He described Jesus as our representative, right? We just talked about that last week. So just as Adam was our representative in the garden when he disobeyed God, Jesus was our representative when he obeyed God, when he died on the cross. And if it's true that he is our representative when he died and we experience that, then it's also certainly going to be true that he is our representative when he's raised. And in the same way, we'll experience that resurrection. I think it's really neat how he words this because he's being really careful. When we believe, it's not that we experience exactly what Jesus experienced, right? We don't go through physical crucifixion. Has anybody in here been physically crucified? I mean, I have confidence no one will raise their hand because you don't survive that. So we didn't, we weren't physically crucified and in the same way we weren't physically raised. And so what he says is that we were united with him in a death like his and united with him in a resurrection like his. And Tom Schreiner was really helpful in pointing out how this word translated like is used by Paul elsewhere in in Philippians, for example. In Philippians 2.7, Paul says that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. He's using the same word. Here it's translated like, there it's translated likeness. And, And what Schreiner explains is that what Paul's saying there in Philippians is that Jesus really was human, but there is something different about Jesus because of what he said in verse six. Jesus was also in the form of God and equal with God. And so here, our union is it's really, we really were, we really did die with Christ. We experienced his death, but it was different. There was a difference about it. It's real, but there is some difference to it. And we experience his resurrection. Initially, we don't experience that like he did. And it's true. One day we will be raised like Christ is raised after we die like he died, though not by crucifixion. But what this is talking about is that we've even now begun to experience the resurrection because of our connection to Jesus. So we experience, we see that power in our lives by walking in newness of life, by living a changed life. That's where we see the resurrection power. So we do not continue in sin Because of the fact that we died and rose with Christ. At our conversion, we were united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And and that the purpose of that was to transform us. And we can point to our baptism to say that illustrates that transformation. Just as we went down into the water, we were buried with him. We died with him. And as we came out of the water, we were raised with him. It points to what we've experienced. The second facet to our union with Christ is found in verses 6 through 10. We do not continue in sin also because of the results of dying and rising with Christ. When we believe the gospel, we experience the gospel. When we believe in Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection for our sin, to save us from our sin, we're united with his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And that has these massive implications, these, these massive results. So Paul begins, first of all, with the results of dying with Christ in verses 6 and 7. And once again, he's pointing to what these Roman believers already knew. Now, 
when we're going through Romans, we go through section by section. And sometimes each week we, we can forget about what we've already talked about. But that's crucial for us here to remember what Paul talked about in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul talked about two men. He talked about one man's disobedience in a verse like verse 19. He's talking about Adam. In that same verse, he talked about one man's obedience, referring to Jesus. Well, here, in an attempt to be gender inclusive, nearly every modern translation translates it our old self. But the Greek is literally our old man. And Paul is making a connection to that old man. The first man, the first Adam. So he's saying that who we were because of our sin in Adam was crucified with Jesus. God united us with Jesus' crucifixion in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And those are similar ideas. The idea of our old self and the body of sin. The first refers to our connection to Adam. And the, first, the, other, the second describes the effect of that connection. So Adam's sin brought us into a world where sin reigned. And what he's talking about by using the word body is the same situation. He's talking about how our existence in this fallen world was dominated by sin. It was a body of sin. But that reality, our experience in that realm, was crucified. It was put to death. So that the circumstances in which sin ruled, they were brought to nothing. In other words, sin's domination would be abolished. Its reign would be ended. And the result, he says, would be that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, Paul then says, for for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, the odd thing about that translation is that the the words translated has been set free everywhere else in Romans would be translated has been justified. It's the only place where it takes that word and translates it freedom. Now, I think it is the effect of justification he's, he's referring to is freedom from sin. But what I think Paul's doing is connecting this freedom with his main idea. He's been talking about justification. So one side of being justified is being severed from our own life. You know, we, remember what justification is, we're declared to be righteous. That ruling, when God does that, when God rules us to be righteous in Christ, our sin has been dealt with because we were crucified with Christ, and when God makes that declaration, sin's power comes to an end in our life. It can no longer tell us what to do. So that's why we don't sin. That's why we don't continue in sin. We do sin, but we don't continue in sin Because our death with Christ results in the end of sin's power. We're no longer slaves to sin because we died with Christ. And then in verse 8, he turns to the results of of rising with Christ. So, verse 8, Paul kind of reminds us of what he's been talking about. He repeats his point that he made in verse 5, that there's a connection between dying with Christ and rising again with Christ. He says, And we know it's true, we will one day rise physically, but what he's talking about here is that Christ's resurrection impacts us now. So in light of the fact that if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him, Paul goes on in verse 9 to say how significant it is that Christ has been raised. So 
he says, first of all, Christ's resurrection was not a resuscitation. So Christians do not believe that Jesus was just surprisingly revived after being dead. That's not the miracle. Jesus' resurrection was a transformation. It's the transformation Daniel 12 talked about, which Daniel 12 talked about happening at the end of time, just before God's people enjoy the eternal kingdom. So that's what resurrection is. It's this transformation of human existence. And that's why Paul can say, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is the existence Paul talks about in in 1 Corinthians 15 as immortality. That's the victory of the resurrection. It It is a transformation. Death no longer has power. Jesus gave himself, willingly gave himself over to the power of death, but never again. And then Paul explains it more in verse 10. And there he brings it back to sin. That's his main concern. The fact that Christ has overcome death's dominion is proof that he's overcome sin's dominion. Again, death is the consequence of Adam's sin. So death's reign only flows out of sin's reign. So Paul's saying that the death Jesus died, he died to sin. He's in no way suggesting Jesus sinned. What he's talking about is how Jesus entered this fallen world ruled by sin. That's what he's been talking about throughout chapter 5. Paul talks about these two realms, really. There is a realm dominated by sin and then the realm dominated by God. Now, we know God's in charge. He's in charge of everything. But in Adam, in our sin with Adam, we are now under the power of sin. That's what Paul talked about. That's the present evil age Paul talks about in, in Galatians 1. You have the present evil age and then you have this new age, the age to come. And... The problem is, what was expected didn't happen. What was expected is that you have this time period, the evil present age, and then at the end of it, the new age comes. Jesus said in Matthew 13, that's not how it works. And so, what Paul's talking about here is that the age to come that was ushered in by the resurrection, according to the Old Testament, that's broken into the present evil age by that mustard seed that began with Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus entered the the present evil age, an age dominated by sin, but when he died, his submission to the effects of sin came to a decisive end. He died to sin. And that was a one-time death. He says it was once for all. So now his resurrected life that transcends this fallen world, he is lived to God. In other words, sin's effects no longer have any, anything to do with Jesus. And again, it's not that he sinned, but he did enter that sinful, fallen world. And sin's power, and just as death's power, no longer has any, any say or any, any connection to his life. He lives to God. He lives in that realm of the new age. So, verse 8, again, it's focusing on the results of Christ's resurrection. We died to sin and we live to God. That's why we do not continue in our sin. The result of dying with Jesus is that we died to sin. The result of living with Jesus is that we live to God. So we don't continue in our sin. And, and then what Paul does is he follows that up with an application. He's helping us understand 
How does that relate? How, how do we then take that and live different lives? And he does that in verses 11 through 14. So it's not just the fact of dying and rising with Jesus or the results of dying and rising with Jesus, but we also then apply that to our lives. So the last thing we see is the application of dying and rising with Christ. And that's why we don't continue in sin. So since we've been united with Christ, and since Christ's death and resurrection is how the power of sins come to an end, the first step in living that way, the first step in not continuing to sin is to think that way, to think that is what's happened to us. And before we go any farther, we need to acknowledge what Paul's doing here in saying that we need to think this way, in saying we need to apply this. He, he's not saying that Christians don't continue to sin. He's saying that we should not continue in sin, but it is possible, and we do sin. So the first step in addressing that, the first way to combat that is to recognize how out of place it is. How out of place it is for a believer to sin. Sin does not make sense for a person who is justified by faith in Jesus. It goes, it goes completely against what God accomplished in Christ. So Paul says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that last phrase, in Christ Jesus, is just shorthand for everything he said about dying and rising with Christ. Because we're now in Christ, we're no longer in Adam. Now, we still sin. We still have sinful desires. But our connection to Adam in the sense that sin dominates us, that's come to an end. In Christ, we've died to sin, sin's power, and we're now alive to God. We've been transferred from sin's power to God's power. And so what Paul's saying is we need to think that way. That's how you view yourself. We don't view ourselves or we don't think through how to change our behavior and focus merely on our best life. That's, that's the secular approach. You change your behavior by focusing on the best life that you can have, which is basically the least amount of discomfort you can have. So the ugly truth about that kind of thinking is it's the perfect description of living a life that's dominated by our own sinful desires. Simply focusing on trying to have the least amount of discomfort, and that's how I'm going to affect change. That's how I'm going to be a different person. That's how I'm going to change my behavior. That's doing nothing other than what your sin-dominated ruled your life before and told you to do. You need to chase after the least amount of discomfort. So that's not what the believer does. Now, I'm certainly not saying that the believer is out to be discomforted. We're not, we're not focused on having the worst life. God designed us to be happy when we function correctly. But what he didn't design us to do is to pursue happiness. So when we change our behavior simply for the sake of our own personal happiness, all we're doing is finding ways to listen better to our sin. We're not doing what Paul's telling us here. So the key to change for a believer is to focus on who we are in Christ. We died with Jesus. So a life that used to be dominated by fear and worry and anger and lust, that life was crucified with Jesus. 
So our sinful behavior no longer has power over us. We've been rescued from that power. And we belong to God to pursue him. And in our pursuit of God, that's how we do experience joy. Not simply by pursuing happiness in itself. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the best illustration of what Paul's talking about here. Doug Moo pointed it out to me. And I think hearing this illustration will help us put together what Paul's doing in applying his teaching in verses 12 through 14. So Lloyd-Jones, he, he compared our situation to a scene from a British countryside. And in those countrysides, I don't know if they're different now, but at the time of Lloyd-Jones, there were these different properties that were divided all by these high rock walls. And so he pictured our lives as, as beginning in one of these properties that's surrounded by these rock walls. And in that property, in that field, we're ruled by sin. And we couldn't get out of that property. We couldn't climb the rock wall. We couldn't get out on our own. We had to listen to, to sin. We had to obey our master, which was our sin. And what happened to us is that we were rescued by God. We were, we were rescued by the son's death and resurrection. And we were then moved from one field to another. And in that new field, Christ is our king, where we are, are no longer directed to our sinful desires. We're now directed to do what's right, to listen to him. But here's the problem. We can still hear sin calling to us. It's just a field over. We're still close. We're still near. We can still hear what it's trying to tell us to do. We're not under its reign anymore, but we can still hear it. And we can still choose to act as though we're still under its domination by listening to it and obeying it, doing what it wants. So that's why Paul tells us how to respond. Instead of doing that, he says to respond in verse 12, saying, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We we could read that as like some type of permissive thing. That's a command. You could translate it, sin must not reign in your mortal body. And by that last phrase, your mortal body, Paul's just pointing out, That even though we have dramatically been impacted by Christ's death and resurrection, we are still going to experience death. And while we are in between these, this time where we're we're going to die and the resurrected, the full experience of God's blessings, during that time, we can't lose sight of what's happened to us. Even though it's, it's not as apparent. We need to not act like sin is still in charge of us. Shouldn't do what sin wants. We shouldn't obey its passions. How do we do that? Paul explains in verse 13. We don't act like sin's still in charge by presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That's what you don't do. That's how you don't act like sin's in charge. When sin was king... You were, you were really a soldier that fought for your king. You, you offered yourself to sin to accomplish sin's goals, which were doing what's not right, doing what does not align with God and what he wants. So Paul's saying don't use your natural capacities that you used to use to carry out unrighteous things. Don't use them for that. Don't use your mind, emotion, and will to do what is not right. Instead, 
present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Act like somebody who's died and risen with Christ because you have. And you do that by offering yourself to God to be used for his cause, to present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You take everything that you have and you use them to fight for your new king. You use your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength to do what's right. I think Francis Havergal put it well when she said to tell God, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. And Paul ends with a promise. In verse 14, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Once we are united in Christ, or with Christ, Sin cannot get its dominion back. It will not have dominion over you. We've experienced the end of the ages. There's nothing after that. We experienced that through the one who died and experienced end time resurrection. We have been connected to that end time resurrection. So for those who are truly justified, who are truly declared righteous, for those who have been united with Christ, there is no possible way to go back. Sin cannot have dominion over you. It will not. So it's not as though you could somehow, if you are truly trusting in Jesus, that you could somehow sin and then face condemnation again. The condemnation that living under the law requires. We're now under grace, Paul says. So again, Paul's talking about these two realms. He can talk about the realm that is ruled by sin and the realm ruled by God. He can talk about it in the same way as the realm under the law and the realm under grace. The present evil age, that's the age in which God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. That covenant looked forward to the day when there would be a new covenant. But it was under the old covenant, it was in that realm of sin where that covenant took place. And how do we know? Because we look at the nation of Israel. It's not to say that there was no grace in Israel, but the overall effect of of that covenant was failure. Israel failed because they were dominated by sin just as we were. So, For Paul, being under the law, being under the Mosaic law is the same thing as being under sin. And that's not our situation anymore. We're under grace in Christ. So where there's grace, where we're dominated by grace, there's freedom from sin. Sin can't control us, which means that when a genuine believer sins, it's not because we had to. It's because we've lost sight of the truth about us. And it's because we've chosen to act like 
sin is still in charge of us. We've chosen to listen to sin as though it's really the one in charge. And the truth is sin's power has been broken for genuine believers. So when we believe in, in, in Christ, when we trust in Christ, we can say no to sin. So we should never believe that the wicked habit we keep slipping back into is too powerful for us. So whatever ways we keep failing, the first thing that we need to believe is that failure is not the only option. That impatient anger that keeps cropping up with our kids, that that lust that continues to plague us, that crushing anxiety that weighs on us, whatever the natural tendency is, we need to understand that we are not simply natural. Something miraculous has happened. We died to that anger, that lust, that worry, and its power is still buried. We're not. We died. We were buried, but we were raised. We have the power of the resurrection pulsing through our veins. And the first thing we need to do is to recognize that. And then we act on that. Failure is not the only option. And so we act like it. We, we present ourselves to God. We, we stop presenting ourselves to sin. We say sin is not in charge of us. We can say no. So don't put yourself within sin's reach. You know, there's that practical instruction that, you know, you've got to look out for those situations and circumstances where you're more likely to fail. Well, we do that, but because we recognize that sin's not in charge of us. So we don't put ourselves at sin's disposal. We don't put ourselves in situations where we know sin's directing us in certain way and more likely to direct us in certain ways. So how is our overall focus setting us up for failure where we're subtly focusing on sin's goals instead of focusing on God's goals for us? Don't offer yourself to sin. Now maybe the truth is you haven't been rescued. Maybe you haven't been rescued from your sin because you've, you've never recognized the good news about Jesus. You never embraced that news. You never truly believed. So understand what Jesus does. He doesn't call us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't call us to fix our sin and then come to him. Everything that I've been talking about is the result of salvation. All we're told to do is recognize that Our sin is a problem that we don't want. And we believe in Jesus. We believe that he died and rose again to save us from that sin. And when you trust in Jesus, you experience the good news about Jesus. That's when you die with him. That's when you're raised with him. That's when you can have a new life. You don't have a new life. You don't turn over a new leaf in hopes that Jesus will accept you. You recognize your sin and you go to Jesus. You trust in Jesus, the Lord who died and rose again. Join me in prayer. Spirit, we, we want to acknowledge, even as, as you inspired Paul to later in, in Romans 8, speak of your power, your role in this. We want to acknowledge that. We cannot do any of these things in our own strength. So we ask that you would empower us. 
That even as we act to, as Paul puts it, work out our salvation, to apply these truths involved in our salvation, we do that with fear and trembling because you are at work in us. You are the one causing us to even want to do this. You're the one who causes us to be able to do it and to, in fact, do it. So we want to acknowledge that, first of all, that we are not in any way assuming that this, too, is, is something where we, we work really hard, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to make these applications from the word that you inspired based on your power so that we acknowledge all along the way that any success we have is the fruit that comes from you. So we ask that, that you would strengthen our hands, that you would uphold us, that you would cause us to see the reality of your presence with us, that we, we would act in faith. We would live out the truth of our union with Christ. We also want to pray for anyone here who just thinks that being a good person is good enough. Spirit, we ask that you would cause them to see the truth about themselves, that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness, what real righteousness is and of their need. That you would cause them to pay attention to the good news found in Jesus, that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust in Jesus, even today. Amen.